Hey, welcome to RushCast. Glad to have you here. We're coming at you every Monday talking about the band Rush. Uh, right now, in 2016, we're doing an album series, and today's uh, episode is devoted to A Farewell to Kings. So we're glad you're here. Last week, we talked about 2112. I had Ed, Ed Stenger from Rush's a Band on, and we had a nice chat about his favorite album. You know, sometimes I say things I regret. Sometimes I say things that are wrong. <laughs> um, if, if you're new to RushCast, I'm 24 years old, and I don't have the... Well, I pride myself on having as much Rush knowledge as you could possibly have. I have very little knowledge on the rest of the classic rock world, as it's labeled now. So on last last episode, I was informed that I, I, I said Axl Rose was a guitarist. I'll ask my producer, do you know who Axl Rose is? I've heard the name. You're also, also 24. Yeah. You've heard the name. I also call it classic rock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not get into a genre war. <laughs> you know, like, like I have listeners who freak out when I say metal. Or, or we classify Rush as progressive metal. And there's an argument to that. We'll get into that some other time. But you don't know who Axl Rose, Rose is? Rose is a singer. He's a singer, yep. Of Oh, this is embarrassing. This is two weeks in a row that you've asked me a question, and I have not been able to answer you. Yeah, okay, well, it makes me <laughs> feel better, because you're also a musician. And we're not huge classic rock buffs, but um, Axl Rose is not the guitarist of Guns N' Roses. He's the singer. <laughs> Guns N' Roses, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I don't pride myself on, on giving a crap about anything classic rock outside of Rush. So uh, you, you're a big, sort of a, a much bigger Zeppelin fan than I am. That's true. I, uh, I hardly recent, know any recent Zeppelin. Zeppelin fan, like last year. So it would, it, and, and maybe if you're listening to this, you're like me, and you've, for, you've, your days of trying to convert people to Rush, uh, to be Rush fans are over. I gave up my junior year of high school. I'm like, I'm not going to try to convince anybody anymore that this stuff is great. I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is and let it be good for me. Um, I might break that, break my own rule here and, and try to convert you to this older style of Rush, which a lot of people compare to Led Zeppelin. Okay. All right. I'll, I'd be interested. I'd, yeah, you I'd be curious. And I think take me on you journey. know the listeners would be interested because they, they're sort of getting to know you a little bit as a person that's true and um it would be cool to hear what your fresh ears have to say about it you know what i mean yeah let's do that give me some um, uh give me some, some and conversely send me some zeppelin yeah give me the 10 zeppelin tracks that that i need to hear because cool. I, I don't know any zeppelin absolutely um sweet so axel rose is a vocalist i apologize <laughs> Today we're talking about a farewell to Kings, and I'm happy to bring on uh, a buddy of mine from my music education days at SUNY Potsdam. Uh, please welcome John Bince to the program. How's it going, John? It is going pretty fine. Could uh, could nice be the first time. Yo, you're in Cincinnati. Yeah. You're also good at getting a master's degree in music. Yep, and bass trombone performance. Very didn't cool. Know that existed. <laughs> Uh, that's a rarity. Um, it could be the first time in history I've ever called you John. And yeah. Instead of just Bince, you usually just go by Bince, right? Yeah, it's usually... Well, let's keep it like that for the show. Uh, in the show notes, you'll just be Bince. You'll be like Cher or Madonna. Just you know, Bince. I actually miss being called Bince. Nobody here has picked up on it yet. So. Oh, that's true. You're in a new uh, kind of 
click. And so is yeah, it like yeah. just Jonathan? It's like really, really straight? Yeah, well, there's also a lot of Asian students here. Um, so they say everything straight out. Right. Or John Vince, Jonathan. It's <laughs> definitely a change. But you know what? I can manage. Um, John, uh, <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Vince, um, was a, was a classmate of mine at my last college and, uh, we both played in the orchestra. Uh, we were nearby, our sections were kind of close. Um, and we had talked like on and off and then maybe two semesters into my time there, very casually realized we were both Rush fans. I remember being in the, uh, like the big performance hall, and you overheard me from like two rows behind me. You overheard me say something about Rush. You're you... probably about to test for Echo because you're weird. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, hey, listen. <laughs> uh, oh wait, no. I you definitely said something, or you were gonna go. Oh no, you're gonna buy the seat. You're gonna go get a really nice concert. I think you're going to do the SPAC one. Oh no, that was I, I was buying my tickets to see the clockwork tour in Montreal. That was that's right. Yeah, and I overheard and then we started talking. You said your favorite album was Hold Your Fire and I said, No. <laughs> it's no it's not my favorite album anymore. It, it I, I go okay. through weird, weird phases. Yeah, but you said you said bit. Rush? I said yeah, and you're like, like my favorite band rush? <laughs> and secretly, Vince, it was always a dream of mine. Like in high school when everyone thought Rush was a band I made up to obsess over. <laughs> like, it was my dream, like, I'm going to go to music school, and I'm going to meet a bunch of other musicians that love Rush, and I'm going to start a Rush cover band at college. And you were the <laughs> you were the only uh, part of that dream that came true. Well, there was Walter, but he was only, like, a quarter Rush band. That's true. <laughs> he liked 2112, and that was about it. That's right. <laughs> I've said to Walter, I'm like, Walter, you want to come on my Rush podcast? He's like, uh, no. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> no, what was funny is uh, it was probably like the first semester we started hanging out. We did that Rush Marathon night where we were going to listen to all of oh my the long Rush tone poems. And we listened to all of them. And Walter and Emily, another Rush fan, decided they couldn't handle it anymore. And we started listening at like 930. And I didn't leave until about three in the morning. I forgot all about that. We did spend six hours in my dorm drinking beer yeah, and watching and, yeah, you or listening me, to you Rush. You made me watch the... The time standstill <laughs> video? video again. Oh, that's not a nice thing. <laughs> uh, I hate that music video. <laughs> no, I always argue it's the worst music video of all time in in the history of music. In the history it of music is. videos, but the, in the, a way, it's the best. I well, I think the song is the best. I think the song is top ten all time, and the video is the worst all time. Uh, so, so do you <laughs> lean towards the older material as a listener? Yes, I do. Do you have a fa- so, do you have a like a you know a front runner? Uh, it's it's hard because I'm also like the old guy that likes all of the B side stuff. So like listening to like this week we're gonna talk about Farewell to Kings. Like listening to that album, that entire album almost feels like a B side to twenty one twelve. It's just it's all these great little gems. I mean, obviously closer to the heart is on there. Uh-huh. But I was also looking into it, and Close to the Heart was one of the first songs that they worked with somebody to write, so they brought in another songwriter to work on it. So that's why, one, it probably got pushed through the single system, uh, whatever they wanted to get um, 
it, they wanted it to be popular because they put a lot of effort. And that's why I think it sounds really unique on the album. It's like you go through it, it's all this experimental stuff, and that and Cinderella Man, which were the two singles off of it, were really kind of like stand out in the way that they were more in the popular idiom than their progressive stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, listening to the album again this week, I I noticed the same thing. Like, there's a there's a stark contrast. Maybe not a stark contrast, but there is a difference um, in in sort of vibe on on the album. A lot like Caress of Steel, where on Caress of Steel you have Lakeside Park and and I think I'm going bald and all these kind of poppy uh, you know bright songs, and then you get these two dark, heavy, long epics at the end. Oh, two very yeah. different it's- feelings. And I get it's that with very, this album. I think I think it's a very. This is one of their more personal albums because uh, I rem, I forget which documentary it was, but they're talking about they did Caress of Steel and whoever signed them was like, look, you can't do this weird stuff. We need to make money. We need to put out albums. Which side note, I was looking at all the what years the albums came out, and they did these five super albums in just five straight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And each time they they would record them and mix them within a month. So they were just like machines. So, but so they're that's what twenty one twelve was. Is a response to that. They're going to say, "Hey, we can do what we want and what you want, just way better than you thought we could." And so I think I think um, in a way, a farewell to kings is almost like a barometer. It was like it was qualifying what they were doing, and it was in fact their first gold record. It went huge. Oh, okay. As as you would expect after the the, the popularity of twenty one twelve. Oh yeah, that exploded and went on the scene. Um, reading just briefly going through some of the criticisms, it was generally not liked by all of the critics, but mostly people really received this album well. I think it was really interesting because they started expanding on some of the things they really started messing with in twenty one twelve, like all the acoustic stuff. Yeah, I think this. Yeah, they had like a couple of years, and I mean, we see it in Alex now when he does all, when they do these huge marathon sets. They'll split it up. Neil still gets his drum solo. Everybody gets to play something from the vault, but then Alex always gets to do like some acoustic solo that he's been working on. Mm-hmm. So this stuff clearly he developed the interest here and started maturing and incorporating it. And it's really interesting how they can mash all of these different things together and make it cohesive and coherent. I I always but. think about like, or especially this week, I think about okay, you have twenty one twelve is the latest Rush material. Everybody loves it. Everyone goes crazy for it. It's got dark moments. I mean, I think the whole album is dark, um, but then you have moments like Tears, which are 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 different than the rest of the album. Then we yeah. get a farewell to Kings, and if I'm a Rush fan after 2112, I can't wait for a farewell. Like I could argue, it might, you know, next to Signals, it might be the most anticipated next Rush album, um, yeah. based on the popularity of the one before it. And then I get, if I'm, you know, a listener back then, I get this album, and I start listening, and I get that nice acoustic intro to a farewell to Kings. And I can't imagine what I'd be thinking about, you know. Like this isn't this isn't what I wanted. This, what is going on here? It's almost a joke in that song. It's almost like a well, teaser. You could also look at it this way: is where did we hear the the guitar before? 
it, we heard it in like right after the temples of Syrinx. Like, so is this some kind of parallel? Cause the entire song is about the hypocrisy of the system and how just messed up everything is. And so I guess it's kind of a similar theme. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely because what 2112 starts with this grand overture and this is just this nice, like a loot like intro. Yeah. Very, very medieval. But then when it does drop the bass, so to speak, <laughs> it's, I think the title track is a really satisfying song. I do too. And I, I'm surprised it doesn't get much love live. Maybe yeah. it's a singing thing, but um, and I, I thought for sure R40 would, would feature it, but we didn't get to hear it. Down a third. Down a third, yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you think of A Farewell more as a, a part two to, to 2112, a third side, maybe. And I, I kind of uh, see that because... Yeah, I could see that. Like, I see the it between reason... Tears and Madrigal, I see as kind of sister songs. Yeah. I was. We'll talk about Madrigal in a bit. Because I used to hate it, but now I like it. Yeah, same thing, um, man. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> but the reason I may not consider it the third side to well is because of the Cygnus stuff. Because they they clearly, if you look at it, they married this with Hemispheres. They're both generally shorter albums. So right. they were probably working at all the stuff at the same time. There's themes in Cygnus X1 that are present in X2, obviously, because it's the same story. Yep. But it's also, it's just like a more mature version. So they just had more time and more technology to work out what they wanted to do. Um, but yeah, regardless, I think it's a severely overlooked album. And any self-respecting Rush and needs to be aware of every track on here. I think um, Closer to the Heart might be, you know, if if we if we don't count Fly by Night, maybe if we do count Fly by Night, the the song maybe Closer to the Heart is their second true single. Like like truly, this is meant for the radio. Closer to the Heart, oh, Fly yeah. by Night. What else do we have? I, I mean, you got to throw Working Man in there, but uh, I don't yeah. think Working Man was like a. It, it didn't have that pop aspect. It was the, a blues. It was just like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. blues. Exactly, and not to say that that isn't meant for the radio, but but Fly By Night and, and Closer to the Heart have more of a popular um, pop music sort of vibe to them. Um, well, yeah, that's well, that's what we can see from them. It's like I, I don't I don't want to be the guy that brings classical into it, but I'm in a Beethoven class right now, and one thing we're talking about is the reason he was such a big deal is because he was such a clear master of the music of the time and the past and the future. Yes. And not not trying to put Beethoven down or Rush up or any insinuations, but Rush clearly demonstrates to us that they know the music of the time and they know what they need to do to, you know, survive and keep playing and making the music they want to make, like Xanadu and Cygnus. Yeah, and, and so. I, that's a great point. And I think even to extend on that, they do want to play that popular stuff because look at the rest of their career. The rest of their career yeah. was, I mean, let's take all the tracks from A Farewell to Kings and, and analyze them right now. What, out of all those tracks, which one better represents the bulk of their career to come, the rest of their career? It's not Cygnus, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe a farewell. It's not Xanadu. It, it, Xanadu would not represent the rest of their career. It's probably closer yeah. to the heart or Cinderella, man. Yep. Four, because 
four four easy time signatures uh predictable yeah. form in the tune well, palatable palatable to the public fun to play fun to perform and honestly like we completely take for granted how good the musicians they are the music that they like to play like that challenges them i'm sure they've fell apart in a concert or two because that stuff is hard yeah and to have these war horses like closer to the heart and all the other big ones that they could just throw out there, have fun, run around stage and look cool. Like that's what's going to get them the fans. And then the fans, because what it is, is it's close to the heart is a gateway drug to the rest of rush. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> so people hear this like, wow, I like, I can get over the voice. And wow, that drummer's crazy. The lyrics are pretty good. I can understand what he's saying this time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what else is on this album. And then you start it. And you're like, okay, Feral the King. That's kind of cool. Xanadu, that's weird, but I'm going to listen to it. Um, and then all the other ones, it's just a huge roller coaster trip is really what it is. Well, let's, they lift you up and put you down. Let's talk about what I imagine everybody's waiting for, and that's Xanadu. Um, is such so so loved by everybody uh and it's fantastic i think the best part of xanadu is they're showcasing their ability to create a um a landscape to create a a portrait and a a, again a vibe this i'm going to jazz school i got that word (laughs) i use that word way too much now but it creates like a, a certain aura around the music um it's a it, that there's like an ambient kind of sound existing throughout the tune and it puts you in that place. Yeah. Well, I was again doing some research trying to figure out what they had in mind and so Xanadu is a, obviously they reference Kublai Khan in there. Yep. Um I forget what the original town it's Shangdu is the original name. And Xanadu is actually based off of a poem from some English guy. I should know dates and names and stuff, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, so it's northern China. It's where Kublai Khan would go in the summer months to cool down and kind of hang out. And it's based around, I mean, it's a paradise. Like they say it in the song, absolutely beautiful place, immortality, just all this. It's kind of like the Asian El Dorado. So that's where we get like the woodblock sound, all this ambient stuff. And fun fact, all the birds you hear were just recorded from the birds outside of the Yeah, I read that as well, that they they recorded all the acoustic stuff and all the uh, auxiliary percussion outside in Wales, and they they just used the natural sounds around them. Yeah, and in like a couple of interviews, Getty was talking about how he really liked that specific studio because it had these big echo rooms and weird... Weird experimental stuff. Um, I forget who they recorded with. You probably, it's the same guy in Wales, but he was like really open for that kind of experimental stuff and super like worked with them all the time and let them try stuff. And so, and and it's a testament to, uh, again, I go back to the, the, this ambient sort of space they created with sound. Literally, you have to boil music down to this is just sound. You know, when we get, People get caught up with, oh, this kind of music is is not as, um, you know, this isn't a legit music because they're not real instruments. Well, music is just sounds, you know? They don't need to be instruments. Yeah. Um, it's organized sound. 
I mean, look at synthesizers. Uh, the bulk of what we're hearing in Xanadu at the beginning is our synthesizers. Those arguably mm-hmm. aren't real instruments. Um, but at the beginning of Xanadu, like you said, it's a paradise. And they did a fantastic job of making it sound like, I guess, what you would uh, hear in a movie soundtrack had you seen a paradise. I think it's more colorful than a movie soundtrack. Oh, yeah, I, I think- absolutely. There's no way you could listen to this, the intro of it and not not feel what they're trying to communicate. Yeah. It's just... I, this and is... This, is this, this brings me back to right after the Temples of Syrinx when Alex Lifeson's tuning the guitar that's been lost for years. This is that, that kind of color and texture and innocence in a way. Right. So... That's yeah, yeah, and we man. talked about that last week. That's such a raw moment. You get to hear I mean, what is Alex channeling when he's when he's that character finds the guitar? He's channeling whatever he was doing to discover that instrument at himself as a player, you know? It's a yeah. very raw moment. Mm-hmm. Uh so Cinderella Man is a track that that really it stood out to me immediately when I first heard the album, and I think because like we were, we touched on, it's like closer to the heart. It's got a little more grit to it though. It's got the form. Yeah. It's got the time signatures that I expect from a popular tune, um, but it's it's got a little bit more for me to sink my teeth into as a musician. Yeah, I also think it's one of those singles that just got lost in it all. Yeah, it's like they eventually got a set list that was too big, and it just wasn't reaching enough people so they just kind of dropped it off and if you didn't regularly listen to the albums you never would have caught it if mm-hmm. you're like people our age mm-hmm. that weren't alive when it was going out i wonder and if i think it's oh, go ahead there so you go i wonder if getty's um getty having written the lyrics has any impact on that they're getty's lyrics actually- i wonder if getty says no nah, we but Neil wrote all the rest of the stuff, and it's all way better than what I wrote. Well, uh, yeah. Well, it's. I actually didn't know that when I was looking at it and seeing where the uh, the inspiration came for it. It's based off like a nineteen thirty six like spinoff comedy. It's like you remember that crappy Adam Sandler Mr. Deeds. No, it was the predecessor movie to Mr. Deeds. It was called like, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and it's <laughs> about this guy. He's a poor guy who lives in the middle of nowhere, uh, gets $20 million from an uncle he didn't know he had, goes to the city, and it's about him finding himself and things like that. So I guess, in a way, this song is also kind of reflective of their life at this time. Right. Or So I'm sure they all have a personal connection to it. Well, they notoriously put themselves in every song, especially Neil. So uh, tell me about Madrigal. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. So Madrigal, I remember this was this would be the one where I remember when I had my, I don't even know how many megabytes my iPod Shuffle had, but I had all the I had enough to fit like nine albums, nine Rush albums at a time, and I would always <laughs> go through them. And whenever I get to Madrigal or Rivendell, I would immediately. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> See, I, I think we fall into this category of like. Uh, growing musician, like my, gra- I can eat whatever I want when I'm at my grandma's house, and she'll go, "Oh, he's just he's a growing boy. I'll be a growing boy till I'm 45 in my grandma's eyes." You know, uh, yeah. for you and me, we're growing musicians who I think we're both striving for, like I said, something bigger to sink our teeth into. You know, well, like I think I, I think why this song didn't 
resonate with a, a younger me is because there's concepts that I did I wasn't exposed to or didn't understand. Because really, what this song is is it, it's a ballad for their their lovers or wives from the time. Like, because uh-huh. if you see from their output, you see from their touring, they're on the road constantly. They are super busy, and so this song is just it's alluding to their career as being this giant dragon that they cannot control, but they have to live with. And it's, and obviously Madrigal is an ancient love song from the Renaissance era. So it's just a nice little gesture. It's good. You know, uh, I won't even, guys, I won't even say, my listeners know the band I'm about to reference. I won't even say their name. The the modern progressive metal band that I listen to a lot now calls them uh, palate cleansers, and I think that is the perfect terminology for what oh, they yeah. do. They put them on the ends of their tracks so that you're not just bombarded with all this metal. Uh, it, yeah. It's just something on the other end of the spectrum to cleanse your palate, you know? Um, I think, not to say it's a throwaway song, but that does sort of function as a palate cleanser on the album, like Tears, and like a lot of different things mm-hmm. we hear on Rush albums. Yeah. But in that sense, it it makes a lot of sense that they need to have this stuff because as I was going through this and other albums, you can really tell how cerebral and how heavy and taxing everything else is. And as a lis- listener, just being constantly berated by these mixed meters, these intense messages, these super political statement mm-hmm. and all of this stuff just to get this nice calming melancholy love song now that like my energy is not as high as a kid when i like just listen to like natural science on repeat right <laughs> it's it's nice to get the slow down and it's nice to see another side of these musicians but also, uh, I, as you get older, generally, you appreciate slower music and the love style music. There's definitely a time, there was definitely a time where I realized, oh, there's, you know what, slow, soft music is cool too. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, the, you said you listen to Natural Science on repeat. You know, I, yeah. I was listening to Far Cry on repeat and... and uh you know anything heavy and in your face that I could get my hands on? Big money. Those were tracks that I listened to all the time. I didn't care about high water or or anything. Hardly anything from you know roll the bones and things like that. So yeah. I, I get it. Um, I remember talking to my friend. He actually lives in Schenectady, where you're from. Uh, my friend Nick, who was into Rush, and he he posted something like, "A Farewell to Kings is just a perfect album." And I said, ha, (laughs) perfect, except for that one flaw. You know, like if Madrigal hadn't been there to ruin the whole thing, yeah, it'd be a perfect album. And he was was nice enough to just be like, okay, you immature piece of garbage. (laughs) Yeah, whatever, (laughs) whatever you say. And um, uh, I apologize, Nick. You were right. I get it. I was an immature music listener back then. That's actually a really nice thought, though, that this album is a nice like summary of where they are at this point in their career. It shows where they've come from, it shows where they're going, and it shows what they can do to be one of the best bands in the land on the chart. <laughs> best bands in the land. Yeah, you're right. And I had never really even, before this conversation, 
considered that closer to the heart would would foreshadow i just i always thought of closer to the heart as just this thing like yeah it was this old thing and like because it was so simple but now i see it through a different lens um it's probably their it's probably one it's their shortest one so that's why i think it's really palatable for people and two it's everywhere they play on like every tour the Getty's played it. There's like so many different. You could catch Getty in every single style on every the hairstyle. I mean, every single kind <laughs> of bass, every single kind of city. Like there's a recording and a video out there of them playing. That's it. true. Yeah. And there's some that have like added really cool stuff at the end. Jam like, sessions um, at the end. Even like yeah. even field like rhythm. Uh, a style changes. You know, maybe they change the yeah. time signature and they groove in that time signature for a bit. It became one of their like just staples. Standard, yeah, they're war horses. Uh, speaking of war horses, let's uh, or not war horses, but uh, like juggernauts. <laughs> let's talk about the juggernaut yeah. on this album, uh, Cygnus. You mentioned how parts of it are, you know, themes that are implanted into Cygnus Book Two. Oh yeah, I think I really like all this nerdy stuff because I'm a sci-fi guy. Also, okay, so. My first thought is, why is, well, one, I was like, what is Cygnus even? So Cygnus is obviously a constellation. Cygnus X1 specifically is not necessarily a star. It's considered a micro quasar because for about eight years before they wrote this, they discovered, in, so 1963, they sent out a satellite into space because they cannot observe the x-rays emitted from the star on Earth. And they actually say that in the song, because they're nerds, which Mm -hmm. is awesome. (laughs) So they send a satellite out to, you know, just monitor the star, and they can't figure out what it is. They're like, okay, it must be a black hole. We can't see it. We can only detect it from x-rays. And we know that quasars emit x-rays and other type of radiation. So they start doing more studying, and like, Three years before this track came out, they determined it to be like the micro quasar because it's roughly the size of our sun, but it has a mass of much more than our sun. So it's kind of an anomaly. So in the story here, they go into space. They're going through all these constellations, which is kind of silly because the constellations are, one, very distant and get distorted as soon as you leave our atmosphere. But I think it's fun. And what I think the funniest part about the story is the ship name. And the ship name is a Rosinante, which is the title of the horse from Don Quixote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which is just kind of, which is an interesting, just like a little tiny snippet of maybe what one of them was reading at the time. Right, yeah. Or whatever they would imagine themselves. <laughs> but... So they're flying through space, and they get to here, and they don't know what it is, and he's torn apart in what's essentially probably the first heavy metal that anybody's ever heard. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's bold. Uh, you're you're claiming Cygnus Book One is the first metal that we hear from Rush. I think it's I think it's their metaliest metal they've okay. Done then so maybe they, that's more accurate. Because sh- Vince, you got to understand, yeah. I, I have listeners who, like I said, they they really do bug out when i when i call rush metal and my dad had a conversation with me about it yesterday and he said you got to understand there was prog with genesis and, and king crimson and and guys like that and then there was 
uh, I guess metal is like Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath. Um, and this is hard for me because we didn't exist back then. But he, what my dad told yeah. me was hard rock was the phrase. Metal did not exist yet. Me- metal, the term. It was you were either rock or you were prog or you were hard rock. So Rush was hard rock back then, and they mixed it in with prog. Um, so that's this is just for the people who give me crap about calling it metal. I suppose you're all right that that it really wasn't metal back then. But for us in 2016, what we're talking about is metal. You know, metal means yeah. heaviness, and so for, I think that's an accurate way to say it is that it was the metaliest. Uh, thing that they had at the time with Cygnus. Yeah. Well, you also think there's three guys. You think of that, look at the elements of it. One, there's a sci-fi story. We've gone over that. Two, there's all these breakdowns, just musical interludes, extremely technically demanding, very hard to perform, very hard to play, fun to listen to, exciting to listen to. It's like a tone metal poem. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um... oh, go ahead. And I think the one reason I would put it in the more metal category is because as it progressively gets crazier and crazier, we get like this non-pitched screaming at the end when Getty is <laughs> torn apart. Yeah, like that's kind of a new thing. Just yeah, yelling. interesting non-pitched screaming. Uh, a lot like the what my listeners call Cookie Monster vocals in some of the newer <laughs> metal bands that I listen to or that are out there. Um, I've argued that Rush at times has sort of foreshadowed this non-pitched screaming or, or harsh vocals. Yeah. And there's obviously a dirt, like a direct line or lineage where you talk to all the big metal bands at the time. They're like, what are you listening to? Oh, these guys, Rush, yeah. and other guys. That are... <laughs> <laughs> it's dark. So they always... Yeah, and you were talking about the darkness of 2112, and I would say that this is a little more hopeful because I think it was, they were on the upturn. Like they weren't as, I don't know, afraid of where they were going or what was happening. So I think they took some more chances. And I also think that for the three guys that they are, that this is a very thick texture for the time. Because yeah. they were still learning about how to use synthesizers in the rock context at this point. Yeah. And other things about it, like this is one of their first albums where they successfully incorporate both of them, both elements of acoustic and synth- synthetic instruments in one go. Um, I want to say this before I forget it. I think, hands down, with Farewell being the latest material in their catalog, um, the song, the title track of Farewell to Kings and Cygnus X1 are hands down the best examples of Getty's best bass tone he's ever had. Up until then, those two tracks. Oh yeah. Oh, the bass tone is incredible. Oh, it's so good, especially it's the isolated so... portion in the middle of both tracks. The only other time you get a sound like that, and that's like I remember when I started playing bass, and I was like, "That's the sound I want a bass yeah. to sound like." <laughs> that super heavy treble pickup, and the only other person you hear ever sound like that is uh, Chris Squire from Yes. Yep. And. They're playing the same instrument, too. Yeah, same same bass. They turn up the treble. Because it's like, also, if you look at it, it's not being used as a bass instrument. It's being used as another voice. It's being, it's another element. It's another theme. It's supposed to be heard. And that way, he could still fill out the bottom. Because they're also using synthesizers now. So there's not like the basement drops out from under them. They have the support. And Getty can just be 
virtuoso like he wants to be. Essentially, he's almost playing it like a guitarist, like a lead guitarist would play bass. Oh, yeah. And at this time, he was playing on his double neck. Yep. He had the bass and the 12 string. Um, that freakish 800 pounds. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine they're heavy. I mean, Rickenbackers are heavy with one neck. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you, I, and I don't know because I don't have my CD collection in the city with me. Does A Farewell to Kings say Cygnus X1 or does it say Cygnus X1 Book 1? It just says Cygnus X1. Okay, so we don't... And then when you get Hemisphere, it says Book 2. It says Book 2. Okay, interesting. Um, I Like you said, they were recorded so close to each other. I imagine that was, they, that was you know, by design. Like, they, they knew they were going to have a, a second part. Um, but it interesting that they didn't want to tell you at first. They didn't want to say, hey, yeah. part two's coming or whatever. Uh, but it I, is. I think, I think it was a huge experiment. I think they wanted to see how it would be received. Yeah, but I don't think it would have changed if they put it out or not. I think they just wanted <laughs> to see because they knew. Like I think because I think they were proud of this album, and I think they should have been proud of. They should have been and should still be proud of this album. Yeah. Um, because I think it was a huge step forward for them, but. Also, if you think about the way Cygnus X1 ends, it's a huge breakdown, fall, and he's screaming, and then it ends with, like, three guitar chords. Right. Like, the end question mark? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> You're totally right. That, that It's a big cliffhanger, isn't it? It's not the end yeah. that you want, and we're going to hear it here in and a it's minute. The, it's the end of the album, too. It's like, so, listen to this on vinyl, and you see your... Your needle lift up. You're like, wait, seriously? <laughs> like, that, that can't it's, be true. It's like the end of a Star Wars movie. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> There's five more movies? <laughs> or I guess, you know, if the end of A New Hope was okay, but they're, you know, especially in those prequels, they end the movie and you're like, uh, there was a Clone War or something? Or do we get to see yeah, that? Yeah. <laughs> Does the stuff happen? <laughs> uh,. Thank you for coming on the show, man. This was a lot, we're out of time, but this was like this was great. This is what I want. Yeah, it was fun to nerd out. Nobody here likes Rush, so I feel it. I mean, <laughs> get it all out. Well, that's one. why that's that's why I do the show, Vince, is because uh, now I could talk to people who are like, oh no, I I I geek out in the same fashion. Yeah, actually, no, I do have one friend here who is just super. His, his uh, iPhone lock is twenty one twelve. Of course. And I was like, and like every time, like we'll be listening. We drove to do an audition. It was like four hours away. We listened to Rush for like three of the hours. And there was another kid in the back that was just like really upset. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're talking about. It. I was like, wait, what's your passcode? He's like, dude, you know, come on. <laughs> it was really upset. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that we spent six and a half hours in my dorm. Because I had oh, forgotten yeah. all about that. That was the fastest be, six hours of my life. I'll be fifty years old and still like people be like, "How was college?" I'm like, "Oh, it was great." But this one, this one <laughs> night, we listened to Russia like six hours. <laughs> that was so. And people great. Are like, that's the thing you remember. That's the thing you remember from college. <laughs> You're a nerd. Oh, that was good stuff. And I'll never forget meeting you and you going, like my favorite band, Rush. That Rush. <laughs> All right, Vince. Thanks so much, man. Awesome. Great to hear from you. Great to talk. A lot of fun.